140 characters isn't a lot of room when it comes to politics. It's a sentence, maybe two. It's a small space that can't pack the punch of a 30-second TV ad, does and doesn't have the personal touch of uh, that a TV ad does and doesn't have the personal touch of kissing babies. But as Twitter and social media continue to change the entire media landscape, politicians are using Twitter more and more to communicate with their constituents and share their messages. I'm Bob Salzberg, and today on Noon Edition, we're looking at how social media changes transparency in the political world and how politicians are using it in campaigns and in everyday life. All that and more after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement offering undergraduate and advanced degrees, publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Alex Dierkman, who's sitting in for Mary Catherine mm-hmm. Carmichael today. Uh, we're going to be talking about social media, and this is sort of sparked by State Senator Mike Delf, who uh, took to Twitter earlier this month to defend HJR3 and to spar with some of his critics. Uh, that led to the Indiana General Assembly taking away some of his privileges, moved his seat, too, to be sitting next to a bunch of Democrats, which I'm not sure that Senator Delft liked. Uh, political repercussions from social media use wouldn't have been an issue a few years ago, but uh, that's what's prompting our conversation today on political transparency in the age of social media. Twitter breaks down a wall that used to stand between politicians and constituents. Social media has changed the political landscape by allowing anybody to express concern or support for a politician or issue in a matter of seconds. So today we're going to hear how Twitter has the power to change political campaigns and affect uh, voter opinions. And we have three guests with us in the studio. Emily Metzger is a professor at the Indiana University School of Journalism. Uh, her research focuses on public diplomacy, international communication, and the role of social media in society. Also, Blair Engelhart is here. He's the only owner of Engelhart Group, which provides marketing services to political campaigns. And Bernard L. F- uh, Fraga, right? Sorry, I didn't want to mispronounce your name, uh, is an IU political science professor who focuses on voting behavior. So if you want to join us today, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the local area. You can also join the conversation live at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And is appropriately enough. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So thanks, everybody, for being here. Alex, good to be with you. Yes, nice to be with you. Thanks for being here. Okay, so let's uh, start with a very general question for all of you about how social media is changing this political landscape. Bernard? So I think a few things. First of all, thank you, Bob, for um, inviting me here and for 
allowing me to share some thoughts. So one of the things that social media has allowed campaigns and candidates and politicians in general, elected officials, to do right, is hear the concerns of citizens, as you mentioned, hear them in real time sometimes, but also give more information to constituents about what they are advocating for, what their issue positions might be, and generally to have a kind of more cohesive campaign strategy in terms of targeting individual voters in their districts or in their cities or towns. So I think that those are two ways in which we can see Twitter and other forms of social media having a big impact, not only in terms of transparency, but also maybe helping politicians do their actual job better or get reelected better. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I I totally agree. But I think uh, in our world of political campaigns, it's changed everything. Uh, Not just one little thing. It's changed everything. I think in our world, we saw probably the best marketing campaign I've ever seen in my lifetime, which was the first Obama campaign. And that had a big uh, social media impact. Uh, Recently in the state of Indiana, we saw Glenda Ritz beat uh, a man, I mean, with $331,000, she beat a man that probably spent $2.5 million dollars. Now, granted, that was a a political storm that happened perfectly, but that could never have happened with social media. Uh, And I think we've we've seen on national level things with social media and Andrew Weiner, how it can take you up and take you down as fast. So and I was just telling Emily a minute ago that in our world, probably the most closely guarded secrets that we have within the campaign are the passwords to our social media. Because some young campaign staffer is out at the bar and gets toasted, and uh, all of a sudden he's his you know the candidate is doing this, and so there's usually within a campaign there's two or three people, maybe just one, <clears throat> excuse me, that has those passwords. So in our world, it's changed everything. Wow. So. Okay, <laughs> Emily. <laughs> well, thanks, Bob and Alex, for the chance yes. to be here. Um, The short answer to your question, I think, is that this technology, this transparency changes everything. It's Mm -hmm. disruptive on multiple levels. And we see this disruption not just in politics but in media as well, but certainly in the political context. You've got these amazing communication tools, but the message, the content is still key. You can have the way to blast out your message to 20,000 Twitter followers, but if there's no content – it, it doesn't get you anywhere. After the 2008 presidential election, Ariana Huffington, doyenne of Huffington Post, uh, did a postmortem of the differences in the way the McCain and Obama campaigns had, had handled things. And she said everyone wants to attribute the success of the Obama campaign to his use of social media. And certainly it was a variable, but it was the content of the message mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. won the election for mm-hmm. President Obama. Well, since you mentioned the Huffington Post, I have a, a blog post from there. It's one of their bloggers who, who wrote this. In my eyes, social media is one of the most important global leaps forward in recent human history. It provides for self-expression and promotes mutual understanding. It enables rapid formation of networks and demonstrates our common humanity across cultural differences. It connects people, their ideas, and values like never before. You guys all is, – is that overstating the case? Oh, no. Look what happened in the Middle East. I mean, the Arab Spring. I mean, could that have ever happened without social media? Not in a million years. Yes. And even what's going on today, you look what's going on in Ukraine. You look at it all over. We were talking with Senator Luger the other night, and even he was talking about social media and how that's affecting world issues. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I would argue the role of social media in the Arab Spring is way overplayed. Really? It was a variable, but the, the research certainly indicates that it may have been a multiplier of messages, but it, didn't, it did not 
cause the upheaval? Well, I don't think it caused the upheaval, but it made people in the United States aware of what's going on. It made people around the world uh, going on because we weren't getting any real-time broadcast out of it at that point in time that we knew of that we could rely on. So Mm -hmm. it probably didn't – it probably had a factor in it. So, so one thing to consider might be, um, you know, the, the message is still important, as, as Emily mentioned, but the, the population that's using social media are most likely to use social media, oftentimes younger. So thinking about the Arab Spring, thinking about who in the United States was able to receive messages and see what's going on, without social media, that might be a population that wasn't likely to watch cable news, mm-hmm. wasn't likely to read the newspaper for <coughs> sure or listen to radio or other forms of media. <coughs> so... The question is whether it's replacing these older traditional forms of media. So when we talk about impact, we have to say, well, the media in general has an impact. Maybe it's just changing forms. Mm-hmm. I like to think not, but I'm a newspaper <laughs> guy. <laughs> I like to think it's complementing things. Uh, but no, actually, I, I, I totally agree with the point. And, and I, I think we should probably define social media a little bit because we're, we've been talking mainly about Twitter, I think. Mm-hmm. But you know, Facebook is a different animal. And I think um, Facebook – I don't know if, you, if Emily, if you have any statistics on the demographics of people who are using Facebook, but I, I dare say it's a lot older than than Twitter. It, so. it does skew much older than Twitter. And in fact, recent studies of um, surveys of younger populations are fleeing Facebook simply because mm-hmm. the demographics, because grandma's there. Um, <laughs> right. They love grandma, but um, they'd rather be communicating with their friends in, in environments where they don't feel quite so exposed to their elders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the uh, the idea of, of this of social media and, and these international issues, I think you know I can speak a little bit personally about it because I have uh, we have our newspaper has a connection in Ukraine and and I've been in contact with a couple of people, one who's in Crimea and one who's been in Kiev about what's going on there, and it's just really interesting to be able to communicate mm-hmm. you know instantly with people who are in the middle of what's yeah. happening. So. See, in the campaign note world, we look <clears throat> more than just the the basics. We look at SEM. That's a big part of any campaign that's going on now, and and that just folds right into the whole social media. Define that, SEM. Uh, <clears throat> search engine marketing, mm-hmm. where uh, when, when you're searching on Google, uh, the spiders are picking up either optimization from how the site is designed or you're buying keywords. Um, for example, if I'm running a campaign, I might buy uh, my opponent's URL and names. I bid on it through Google. So anytime someone uh, pulls up John Doe, well, my candidate might come up. So you're buying search engine. When you're searching, I'm buying words for you to search. And that's a big part of campaigns these days. Mm-hmm. And, and how, Blair, how are candidates interacting with, uh, with voters through social media? Well, <clears throat> not very well. I mean, we can see what happened with Mike the other day. I mean, God love Mike. I mean, he, I, uh, what he did was just, you know, we talked about this before the show. That was uh, in the caucus world. That's just not happening. But Talking uh, about Mike Delf. The, I'm the sorry. State Senator, Senator Delf. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Um, some do it very well. Some don't do it very well. I mean, it's, uh, it's a good chance. But like I said, it can take you down as fast as it can take you up. Mm-hmm. We're talking about social media today and how it's uh, fitting into the world of politics. If you have questions uh, or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Um, could you talk a little bit about how people are interacting with politicians on the other side of things? Yes, they're sending us messages, but uh, what are the people sending to politicians? 
Well, one interesting point to make might be looking at, you know, so on, on Twitter, um, you know, a candidate will have a, a number of followers, but it's also the candidate will be able to follow people. I mean, we, we know how that works a little bit. So I was looking at some statistics for, the, for President Obama right now. 41 million followers is what I was seeing. Mm. Some of those are international, of course. <clears throat> and following 650,000 individuals, right? I was looking at Hillary Clinton has a similar, I think it was Ready for Hillary has 90,000 Twitter, um, is following 90,000 um, individuals right now. So these are opportunities for candidates to not only um, kind of receive or, or kind of send out messages to their constituents or interested individuals, but also receive these messages and to follow what's going on in their everyday lives. So one part of it might be obviously a direct tweet that gets sent out to a candidate or campaign or a politician, something that's going on in an individual's life. But even just seeing the everyday kind of interactions, what people are talking about, what news is <coughs> popping up, are people watching the news then tweeting about it, not to the candidate, but just in general, well, candidates can now see that. And that's a completely new arena, something that hasn't really been possible before. <coughs> Facebook doesn't really have that platform set up in the same way. Maybe that's something, an interesting kind of new um, emerging way for candidates to see what their constituents are dealing with. Mm-hmm. Blair? I think you see more of the Twitter on a national basis, on a federal level, than you are <clears throat> on a state level when it comes to campaigns and certainly on a municipal level. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. We, uh, we use Facebook and other social medias a lot more than we do Twitter on statewide campaigns. Uh, we just don't have that many uh, followers on it. But Facebook in the social media world and, and uh, some of the others, I mean, uh, we're using several of the other. Instagram, the politicians seem to love Instagram since they get their picture taken all, all the time. That seems <laughs> yeah. to be a big thing. Yeah. Uh, we just we have Twitter. It's one of those necessary evils that we deal with. Uh, but you know, it's nothing like on a federal level. Mm-hmm. Emily, from your perspective, is this changing the, the quality of the campaigns and the quality of information that, that voters can get? I think there's a lot of potential for improved quality all around. Uh, but there's a real difference between potential and reality. I was thinking as I was listening to Blair and, and Bernard talking about this, there's a real difference in the way Twitter is for example, is being used by elected officials at the municipal and local level, state level, versus federal level. At the state level, a, a representative, or um, sorry, Senator Delph, for example, could um, use Twitter and did it in a rather knee-jerk sort of way to his own detriment, obviously. But at the federal level, members of Congress, for example, they're not running their own Twitter feeds. It may have their ID, but they're not running it. It's their press person and other people who are designated with the authority to represent them. And um, I think there's there are some constituents. It's being used to push out information in the same way. It's just it's a press release, but it's going via Twitter and it's in 140 mm-hmm. characters. So in that sense, um, the potential isn't really being realized. Some of the research that I'm doing looking at Twitter use on the part of American embassies abroad, for example, um, shows that the embassies are very good at pushing out the information, um, but not so good at engaging. And I think mm-hmm. we see that at the federal level as well <clears throat> with um, members of Congress and their use of Twitter. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, do you so on on the state level? We're, we're talking about Mike Delph a little bit, and you know, he's, it's easy to talk about him because he sort of sparked a, a lot of this right. conversation today. But uh, I mean, do you see other? You know, I follow several politicians mm-hmm. in one way or another, and I don't. I, it's like Emily said, I don't see a lot that seem to be writing anything to me that's very personal. So, right, you, I, uh, the, probably the best in our state, Senator Jim Merritt. Mm-hmm. 
he is really good. I mean, he's he's always topical. He uh, he was one that passed the uh, Lifeline Law, which mm-hmm. is big on college campuses. Um, <clears throat> he was also uh, passed the uh, designer drug. Uh, what, what was I don't know. Uh, smoke. Ex- ecstasy. Yeah. yeah. Well, the the. Whatever, the uh, basalt. Yeah. But he probably, of all of them, uh, does a good job. Uh, Representative Jerry Tor does a great job on Twitter and on Facebook, too. So, mm-hmm. And so how, what constitutes a great job in your, in your mind? Uh, when, when, I, when I see that tweet or when I see that Facebook post, I actually click on it and read more. You know, mm-hmm. when, I, when I'm interacting, when I'm interfacing, and then look at how many shares it has. Mm-hmm. You know, the more shares, it tells me, okay, this is, this is getting ground. Uh, but, you know, anytime I can take 30 seconds out of my day to click on something, I'm going to be engaged, and that's what you want. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, I mean, one thing to think about might be, you know, what, what did things look like before we had kind of a social media mm-hmm. landscape? And, I, you know, I, I'm more familiar with the case of Congress and the federal level. And one thing you could say is, when a representative would receive letters from constituents, wouldn't, wouldn't really read the letters necessarily, but it was the quantity of the letters and the topics, and someone would sort them and say, okay, well, here's what's, you know, this is what people are talking about. So when constituents are contacting their representatives or their elected officials, it can be much more about just the quantity and kind of what are the topics coming up instead of expecting a personal response is just to raise awareness. So maybe that's another way of thinking about it and thinking about it more in terms of you know, it would be ideal would be for candidates and politicians to really be responding to constituent interests. Maybe it's, you know, on the path to something good if they're at least aware of issues that are coming up mm-hmm. or could be made aware of issues. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some literature emanating from public relations, actually, that has looked at the way um, institutions of various types make use of the interactive technologies online. And they've identified really this typology for um, categorizing what makes a quality tweet, for mm-hmm. example, um, it has three characteristics. First is whether or not it um, presents any sort of uh, disclosure. How open is it? Second, um, is it disseminating information? And third, how interactive is it? Is it eliciting involvement from people? Is it more than just a one-way um, mm-hmm. operation? And I think the potential for a back-and-forth is what's most disruptive about these social media um, it's where the greatest potential is, but it's also, I think, the scariest thing for, for right. politicians and, and others who use these tools to, to implement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you followed Mike Delft's tweets from that sun, that actually it started on a Saturday, I think, and you followed him all the way down that Sunday into the Monday, it was, it was a circus. I mean, he, he had Freedom, Inter- Freedom Indiana interacting with him. You had the Christian right interacting. You had the evangelicals. It was it was it was ex- it was fun to watch it. I, I, it was kind of like it, yeah, you, we don't get to see that too often here in in uh, Indiana. But it was actually cool, and it was it was it was social media at its finest, as far as I'm concerned. It was it was very cool to watch because all of Indianapolis was watching it. I, I promise you. <laughs> well, political. Political. Yeah. <laughs> all right, our phone numbers again: eight five five zero eight one one in Bloomington, eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight outside of the local calling area. You can also join us at a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We're talking about uh, Twitter and other social media and how they, uh, how they work in politics. And if you have any stories or any examples, how you've interacted with uh, your political leaders, please give us a call and let us know. So Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, they're all free. How is this affecting 
you know, the, the money and campaigning? Well, okay, uh, we get paid <laughs> by running these things. Um, we, when we set out a budget, traditionally you sit down, you set out your whole Excel spreadsheet. Okay, you can spend so much in TV, so much in radio, so much in direct mail. Uh, right now the big new thing is push texting. That's, that's the new technology that – well, it's not new, but it's, it's becoming – so while it's free, somebody still has to know what they're doing. Somebody still has to run it. We run Facebook pages for candidates. That's no secret because the candidate doesn't have time to sit there and especially this time of year, they're going to Lincoln Day dinners and there's 92 of them. They don't have time to do all that. So they've usually got a surrogate or somebody doing that. So, yeah, people are making money, but uh, it's mostly from time and organizing it and, and doing it. You mentioned push texting. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, push texting and actually the radio and TV stations were the first one to, to grab a hold of that. And that's basically it's uh, uh, where, uh, you know, if you, you, you have the app downloaded and you're getting push texts, good morning, channel 6, it's 5 o'clock uh, uh, in the morning, 32 degrees. Well, you're going to start – we're seeing a lot more of that in political campaigns. Susan Brooks did a good job of this in the last cycle. Um, push technology to their followers. It keeps them engaged and actually does get uh, new, new people looking at that. So mm-hmm. pretty so cool. There's two sides to the kind of – free component of these social media websites. The first one is that it's very easy for constituents or interested individuals to acquire information. You don't have to have a cable subscription. You have to have internet and a mobile phone, but almost everyone has, you know, like a mobile phone with sometimes a smartphone or advanced cellular capabilities, right? So that's the one side of it is it's easier for the constituents to acquire information. The other side is that it's maybe in some ways lower cost but not, not free for campaigns to be using the social media platform. And I think it's important to call out that, you know, it's not anywhere near as expensive as doing a TV ad buy. But if you want to get the best people working there, right, especially the federal level, that could cost a substantial amount of money. <clears throat> so thinking about it in terms of free, it's free on kind of both sides in a way. Maybe it's opening up the space a little bit. One of the things that I've seen is that campaigns, even for Congress, which is obviously, you know, federal level, very important, primary candidates will now have a Twitter or a Facebook page instead of creating a traditional campaign website and be sending out information through that mechanism. It doesn't look as professional, but it's maybe a way of kind of opening up the space in terms of who can run. or <clears throat> That might be another way of thinking about it as well. All right. We've uh, hit halftime of our program. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Noon Edition today as we talk about social media, particularly how social media is used in politics and campaigning. We have three guests with us in the studio, Emily Metzger, a professor at the IU School of Journalism, Blair Engelhart, the owner of Engelhart Group, which provides marketing services to political campaigns, and Bernard Fraga, who is an IU political science professor who focuses on voting behavior. You can uh, join us for the second half of the program after this brief timeout. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington. Online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiu.org. 
And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIU.org news. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times along with Alex Dierkman. Mm-hmm. And we're talking today with three guests in the studio. Uh, Emily Metzger, a professor at I, the IU School of Journalism, whose research focuses on public diplomacy, international communication, and the role of social media in society, which is our topic today. Blair Engelhart is the owner of Engelhart Group, which provides marketing services to political campaigns. And Bernard L. Fraga is an IU political science professor who focuses on voting behavior. So if you want to join us today, and we hope you'll give us a call if you have any questions about uh, social media, 855-0811 in Bloomington. 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join a live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Well, yeah, the question I was uh, sort of uh, prompted the the panel on or promoted to the panel before uh, we got back on the air has to do with, uh, with scientific polling that campaigns have done. Because that used to be a, a major part, and I'm sure it still is a major part of campaigns. But then there's also social media and trying to gauge what the issues are based on social media, which is not at all – I don't believe it's scientific at all, although there may be some new studies about that that I'm not familiar with. Bernard, can you sort sure. of address that issue? So thinking about uh, the Twitter population, I think uh, Twitter is a good example here. People voice their opinions very readily, it seems like, on Twitter. Uh, the first debate, the first presidential debate in 2012 between President Obama and Mitt Romney, uh, the I think the consensus in the discussion among the pundits was that Romney seemed to do a little bit better, that Obama seemed you know tired or disinterested, disengaged. Uh, and the polling data that came out actually said the same thing, was that the general public seemed to agree that, that Romney won the debate. Now, on Twitter, on the other hand, judging as far as we could tell through scientific methods, through looking at tweets and the content of tweets, this analysis – seemed like Obama was the winner of the first debate. Everyone was saying how well he did. And there didn't seem to be a lot of connection there between the polling data. So the representativeness of the population that's actually participating in social media is something that scientists, analysts, especially political scientists, have to keep in mind and we're very concerned about when relying on that kind of data. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, there are some analyses that are coming out now thinking about whether candidates are more or less successful depending on the number of tweets they receive, but the issue there is that a campaign that's well-organized and very likely to win is also very likely to have a very good social media platform. People say, well, Obama won the election because he had such great social media outlets and Republican candidates weren't doing as well. Well, maybe he had a good campaign and that was just a part of it. It's very difficult to tell exactly how much that mattered. The last thing I'll say about that is that in 2012, Obama was doing polling in the state of Ohio at a rate that was unprecedented, battleground state. About 30,000 individuals were in his kind of polling sample pool, from what we can tell. And that was very useful for determining in real time that actually called these individuals and say, what did you think about this? What have you heard lately in the news? Maybe Twitter could take the place of some of that, but we have to see whether the population is representative first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're seeing some of that, um, <clears throat> especially when you're putting a, a campaign team together. Uh, I mean, first words, uh, who's our social media guy going to be or girl? Uh, I think one thing that 
in the polling and in this whole research thing that we've seen is a complete change in the way we look at OPR. And, you know, used to we'd have to go out and spend ten, fifteen thousand dollars hire an OPR firm and OPR? Opposition research. Okay, thank you. First thing you do <laughs> when you run a campaign is you run opposition research on yourself to find out what's in your closet, what is the other guy going to hit you with, right? And then we do opposition research on the opposing candidate so we know if he stole a Snickers when he was nine years old from <laughs> the corner drugstore and he got a speeding ticket, okay? So uh, the whole social media world has changed that because now <clears throat> we can not have to spend as much money with op our firms and we can find a lot of this online if you know where you're working. We still hire them, but because they can get into areas we can't. But social media, <clears throat> not so much Twitter, but maybe Facebook, because people are stupid what they put up there. They just forget it's there forever, you know, uh, ever. So uh, that's changed the whole research area as far as polling on our side, too. Well, you know, one of the reasons I brought that, this up is because, you know, I'm constantly amazed at the kinds of um, survey data that that people in political office will send to us. And, you know, it's based on some survey that they did where they concocted the questions. They sent them out. It used to be in the mail, but now it's it's some it's on you know it's it's online, it's on Facebook. It's I don't know if they started sending out questions on Twitter to try to get responses mm-hmm. or not. But uh, you know, Emily, that those are not polls that are, are reflective of much of anything in my no, mind. No, certainly not. Certainly not. And there's when trying to get a, a sense of uh, what the public is feeling by looking at social media, there's always this danger of um, the dynamic that we've known offline called astroturfing, right? The, the fabrication of something that looks like a genuine grassroots movement. Well, we see this happening online as well in social media networks. Um, in fact, there's a project here at IU, Truthy. The Truthy Project run through um, informatics that initially began by examining the uh, what the modeling of the network surrounding a tweet, a Twitter and the tweets that uh, came in and out of that account, um, being able to identify the legitimacy of that organization, whether it was something that just sort of popped up to promote a particular issue or a particular candidate, or if it was something that really had <clears throat> genuinely, organically emerged as part of the political process. Mm-hmm. So there's always, if you're trying to collect data through social media, there's always the danger of misreading what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. So, so this idea of push polling, which is what you're kind of describing, I mean, a candidate, I remember re- receiving a mailer. Um, shortly after I moved back to Indiana, I was away for a number of years, uh, a mailer from a, a state representative asking me a series of survey questions. But I could tell, having, you know, studying surveys, this is something that I do, right, is like all of those are very leading questions that are going to lead you to a certain direction. And then maybe in the state house or wherever else, they can say, well, look at what my constituents are saying about the single issue. So, I mean, when I look at it, I say, well, that's for a certain purpose. And it's always going to be like that. Now, I think that there are scientific surveys that are run that are usually not run by the campaign because they'd have no real reason to do that, um, that try and pick up on some real opinions right. in the public and that are, are done actually very well and require many fewer people than we'd think. Mm-hmm. Now, the point there is it's about a random, it's a statistically uh, statistical random sample. Simple random sample is very important for ensuring the accuracy of that kind of data. Mm-hmm. When you're using Twitter or anything like that, you can't do that in the same way because the population is self-selecting. They're deciding to be active on social media and then deciding to respond in certain ways. So polling in general has gone through some issues of non-response and who has phones and who has access to the Internet and who's going to respond to mail. But, you know, even beyond that, I think that, you know, uh, 
Twitter and social media might have more issues that we need to think very hard about. Mm-hmm. Blair, well, it just point and the thing that we deal with, not that we've ever created fake accounts, <clears throat> um, <laughs> but that's a big part of, you know, uh, of the whole world today, and uh, especially on Facebook, where you can you can create a whole person if you want to, a whole persona, and uh, that's that can be used quite effectively in because in our world we have what's called surrogate surrogates and those are people whose fingerprints aren't even close to the campaign maybe. So uh, what they're saying is absolutely true. But what we found is in polling is that <clears throat> there's very few independent pollers anymore. They're either Democrat, Republican, uh, even Pew I think leans you know heavily. So uh, try you, – you know, if you can find out who the the pollster is, you're going to find out who's who's sending out the poll. There's one going on in Indianapolis right now that it's so obvious it's a Democrat pollster mm-hmm. going on mm-hmm. for mayor. Okay. So my question is, how do you think that? Social media is changing who's voting. Do you think that uh, social media is involving a different population than it did before? Are we seeing younger voters? I I think it has the potential to attract and retain people who have not typically been engaged in the political process. I think that was the great hope um, leading to the elections in 2008. We've talked a little bit about what some of the um, post-election analysis suggested was, in fact, the reality on that front. I think it boils down to, and the political consultant can certainly weigh in, the message. Mm -hmm. It boils down to the message. And people will vote, will turn out to vote if they feel it, the candidate is compelling and the message is compelling, almost regardless of the way that message is delivered. Yeah. But you look at the psychographics, too. In 2008, uh, <clears throat> the 18 to 24 demographic on Facebook, 19 percent uh, uh, of 83 percent were engaged in some type of political dissertation online. Today, it's 91 percent. So those, I mean, those numbers are, are – and that's from Pew, so it's going to be a little – but the, those numbers are staggering. And that tells us that – and I think one of the factors that we're seeing this is we call it the Ron Paul effect. I, uh, you know, the minute Ron Paul started speaking, we could see certain spikes in uh, certain polling. And especially with the 18 to 24, 18 to 30 demographic uh, being more libertarian-minded than, uh, say, the older demographic, uh, we thought that the Ron Paul effect really has something, something to do with that. And we're seeing more um, more interaction with the 18 to 24. It's a very desirable group. But – Getting them to vote is another thing. Getting them to the polls is a different ballgame. So I'm going to say something that maybe is uh, – that disagrees a little bit. I'm going to say that for the turnout story, the message doesn't matter. And here's why I think that. So there's a study that was done that was actually published in Nature, so a very respected scientific uh, publication, usually dealing with natural science. This was a political science article, very rare. And it was titled something like, uh, you know, a 60 million – person, randomized, you know, controlled experiment on voter turnout. What they did was a political scientist, James Fowler over at UCSD and a team including Robert Bond and others, actually studied, right, the effect of Facebook putting messages about your friends voting. So would it make it more likely for you to vote if you saw that your friends on Facebook voted? And they did this in a very, you know, interesting set of ways. But what they found was that in the 2010 election, Something like – so Facebook was participating in this. A lot of people got a message saying your friends voted. Did that make you more likely to vote? said it did, and it was statistically significant. Very small effect, but it had this big downstream impact. 
So it might not really change too many people's minds, but it can have a big impact on who's actually voting. They found that something like you know, over 100,000 individuals actually in the real world voted in the 2010 election that would not have voted had Facebook not partnered with this team to run this experiment where they posted up whether your friends voted or not. Mm-hmm. So the evidence that I've seen, at least, is that if you know that other people like your friends are voting, participating, those network connections might lead you to vote regardless of the candidate or your political beliefs. It's like a reminder. And that mm-hmm. could be where social media has the biggest impact on who's participating. Isn't that going to be – won't the message be part of that, though? Because, I mean, if you think your friends – your friends – Probably a majority of your friends are going to have the, the same sort of political leanings that you do. So, if they feel strongly about uh, an issue and they say we're going to, I'm going to go out and vote, and then you go out and vote because your friend's going to go out and vote, the content might be the same. So, let's say that you have a friend that whose politics you disagree with, mm-hmm. and you see on Facebook a message that said your friend, you know, voted, mm-hmm. and you weren't going to go vote, but you're saying, ah. Oh, I better go vote because otherwise my candidate's not going to win. Oh, so I yeah. think it can go both ways in yeah, that. That's right. And you're Good right point. that the connections mm-hmm. are there. But the message that was sent out was simply your friends voted, not who they voted for, mm-hmm. not which candidate they're supporting and all that. Of course, you can't you know, restrict that when you're looking at the data in the, in the same way. You can't you know, remove everyone's political beliefs. But the message even saying, hey, did you know your friends voted? tends to make you more likely to vote. And we see a lot of evidence of that, mm-hmm. a lot of political science research suggesting that getting a mailer, reminding you of your civic duty to vote, telling you that your neighbors are going to find mm-hmm. out if you voted or not, interesting stuff on that, that will make you more likely to turn out. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and that basically falls down into Facebook. You know, when uh, uh, Bernard sees that I went to, was it Lil Zagreb's? Okay, sure. and I really enjoyed that. He might message me, hey, how was the steak? Okay, and I'll take back, good, you got to go. And guess what? He's going to go to Little Zagreb. So you've got the instant messaging on the backside, and you're seeing what your friends are doing. Oh, I saw a good movie or I went to see The Temptations last night or whatever. So we we seem to forget that there's that back – the back door to the instant messaging and everything where you can uh, uh, interact with your friends. Mm -hmm. All right. We have a phone call, so we're going to go to Jack from Bloomington. Jack? Yes, sir. I've, I've got a couple of questions. Uh, I don't use uh, any of the social media. I do use email. I pay attention to politics. I get about a dozen political messages a day on my email. I want to know, one, is I, am I missing anything significant by not using social media? And secondly, does, do the people anticipate that if, even if I'm not missing something now, I'm likely to in the near future? All right, Emily? What do you think? <laughs> That's such a great question. <laughs> oh, on some days I'd say you're not missing a thing. <laughs> I, I think it depends on what what the caller is looking for in terms of political information. If he is looking for information that is being processed and packaged for him, sent to him, framed in a particular way by a candidate or an advocacy group, um, then, then he's getting then he's getting what he wants. If he's interested, though, in learning what other people outside are are thinking, other people beyond the source of that message, if he's interested in knowing what the uh, the opposition position is, whether it's an issue or a, or a campaign messaging, I mean that that's the information that's out there. There's always danger of being in an echo chamber if you're not actively seeking information as opposed to just receiving it. 
I yeah, I mean it sounds uh sounds like the caller is kind of a semi political junkie. So yeah, you probably are learning you're missing out on a bunch of stuff. I got an eighty seven year old mother <clears throat> that I bought an iPad and I've created a political monster. <laughs> you know. Because she's doing exactly what Emily talked about. She's she's seeking things out instead of just regurgitating what's sent to her on her emails. Because I guarantee you I'm gonna tell you exactly what I want you to know and nothing more in my political emails, okay? But when I want the real, I should say, when I want the different story, <laughs> I'm going to seek it, okay? Yeah, I think that that's basically the idea. I mean, it's what you do with it. So right. if, if you're the kind of individual that's looking for a different set of information than what you're hearing on the news or that you can get in the newspaper or get on the radio, then obviously using these social media platforms is going to be advantageous mm -hmm. to you. Now, that being said, you also self-select when using those platforms. You decide who you want to follow. Decide who you want to like, like on Facebook. The Internet itself might be more of a tool for kind of increasing the kind of uh, space or the opportunities for individuals to hear viewpoints that are not ones that they agree with. You can Google and find out, oh, what's you know, this person saying? What's their opponent saying? I think social media can, is maybe a little bit closer to that, but it's not really a substitute to saying, can you do research and find out and form your own opinions? <clears throat> There's always the letters to the editor in the Herald Times. You betcha, Jack. <laughs> That's right. They're not self-selected. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot for the call. Thank you. We appreciate it. All right. 855-0811 is the local number, 1-877-285-9348 from outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can follow us on Twitter. Um, I want to ask Blair about about issues that, that you've seen with candidates about social media. You know, I think about the fact that that maybe you know, I, I still hear from people in in my profession in journalism say, well, you know, I've got my Facebook for my personal uh, page, and I feel like I can post things on there that I wouldn't post on Twitter because that's more my professional. Uh, are there – I mean, is it safe for uh, somebody who wants to run for politics to actually have a personal social media space? Sure. It's safe. But you got to remember, <clears throat> I've got people watching all of my competition's whole social media world, okay? It doesn't I, sound I, safe to me then. <laughs> well, you know, let's take example. One of my candidates now, he's got a personal page that he does with his family, and then there's the there's the page for the campaign page, then there's some other pages. But um, <clears throat> and there's very distinct, uh, I want to say distinct messaging and copy. You know, one candidate is talking about his, you know. Uh, he happens to be a mayor, so he's talking about all the neat things that's going on. The other time he's talking about, you know, investments for the state or whatever. So uh, you got to be careful of that. I mean, uh, uh, Richard Murdoch, there's a perfect example of you just got to be careful. And that's why you got to have somebody controlling that you trust with your life, literally controlling your Facebook. We were talking earlier about what Richard Murdoch did. Uh, I don't remember the issue, but you remember uh, about two years ago when all of a sudden on YouTube – there were four answers to a question. Somebody had released all his his pre-recorded answers. Uh, I don't remember. It was a federal. It was a federal type bill. But that just goes to show that you, you got to keep them separate, and you, you, you got to be careful because we're monitoring that stuff. And my competitions are monitoring my candidates too. Mm -hmm. Every word. 
So is it making uh, people who are running for office more honest or less Oh, honest? absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It's holding their feet to the fire. And every, because what can happen is, uh, say, I've got a mayor running. Well, they can get on and say, well, my pot, I've still got nine potholes mm-hmm. on my street. What are you going to do about it? Well, I can't delete them, right? right? Or, and they can be bashing my client. But that's just part of the game. You've got to take the good. Now, when they start attacking family or other issues, that's, uh, we draw the line at that. But you know, it's a two-way street. Yep. So it sounds like if you're 12 and you're getting your first Facebook, if you plan to be a politician, you better be careful because <laughs> anything can come back up and haunt you. It's really those college students that have to worry about things. You know? <laughs> don't, don't be posting things on Twitter and, uh, and Facebook and other places where someone might find them if you're interested. You know, for jobs and everything, this is what people talk about. Be very careful with your social media mm-hmm. space because that can get out. And make sure your privacy settings are set correctly. Be very careful about your passwords. Make sure you change those regularly. All of those steps are necessary. And guess what? The first thing, when I'm interviewing a, cl- uh, a new employee, guess what the first thing I do? What? I'll go to Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, and I'll see if they're saying anything sensitive that could possibly hurt any of my candidates. We we do a lot of libertarian work at my firm, and so I'm very sensitive to, uh, you know, what goes on there. I mean, you know, we don't go back to kids, but we certainly look look what they said in college, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, if possible. It's maybe a little off topic, but there was a story on this very radio station on NPR. Uh, I think it was earlier this week about how. Um, Unfair it is in a lot of ways to go look at a, somebody's Facebook page and mm. sort of make a judgment on that person based on the page. And in, in this particular case, it was about a firm or a school that had interviewed a, a kid who was from you know, somewhere in South Central L.A. or something who had posted some gang-related messages on his social media um, because that was the way he could survive at home. Mm-hmm. But yet when he applied at Yale or Harvard or wherever it was and they were asking about it, you know, they, they weren't too inclined to, to let this kid in school because they thought he had some gang connections. But yet mm-hmm. it was something that he, he was trying to do to survive in his real world. The point of social media is to be social. Mm-hmm. The point of social media is to share and share that with others. Now, if there's things that are posted to social media that you intend to only be found and seen by your friends and only by your very close friends, indeed, then you have to make sure that things are set up in a way where that's only going to be seen by those individuals. In the same way as if, you know, if you have a set of personal political beliefs and then you go and, you know, you talk really loudly and your neighbor hears you, they might use that and hold it against you, right? To me, it's the same kind of thing. It's about making sure that you are private with your information because we know for sure that firms like Twitter and Facebook are not going to go out of their way to make sure that your data is secure or that it's, it's kept from uh, employers or college. Or the NSA. Right. We'll bring that up. <laughs> that story from NPR last week, I think, is a cautionary tale. Um, I found myself spending a lot of time thinking about it after the fact. It has as much to do with the people who maintain their social media accounts as it does with the people who are consumers of those media Mm. accounts. Um, And the lesson from that story was about the need for context, for recognizing if you're an admissions officer that a student coming from South L.A. in a gang-related area might be engaged in gang-appearing activities to, as you had worded it, you know, to maintain his street credibility and to remain safe and social in the environment that he lived in. Um, And that I think 
points to the fact that it is important to be just aware as both producers and mm-hmm. consumers. And maybe that's where the biggest disruption with respect to social media comes from, the ability of people who used to just be consumers to now be producers as well. Right. And mm-hmm. we're still trying to figure out what that what that means in the right. political context. Yes. But, and, and I think Bernard might even uh, back me up on this one, is that we know who our voters are uh, and, and we uh, you know we monitor that quite closely. So we've got a pretty good hold on that. And uh, it, it's a dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. Well, gonna, well, we have five minutes to go, so I want to give the numbers one more time in case you want to sneak in a, a question or a comment. 855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And you can follow us on Twitter. Blair, you mentioned that you know you know who your voters are, and uh, I just want to go back and reiterate Alex's question about you know is social media going to help sort of uh, expand that voter base so that maybe you don't know who who your voters are. Boy, that's a good question. I don't uh, like, like right now when we're, we're in a primary, we know who the hard R's are, the soft R's. We know when they voted in the last. We we've got all that data from the state, uh, from whatever. But um, collecting collecting the, the social media data is is a, is a little bit ambiguous at most because of fake accounts. Uh, we don't know uh, what's real and what isn't. Um, uh, Traditionally, in campaigns, um, in the primary, you run to the right if you're a Republican, and you run to the left, and then in the general, you head to the center. So we pretty much know that, and we take off that on our baseline. Mm-hmm. This is the question. I mean, this is the kind of the future and kind of the situation that we're going to be dealing with, you know, going forward. So now it's campaigns have this voter, as as, uh, as Blair is mentioning, you know, campaigns have this voter information. They know, you know. If you're registered to vote, which if you're voting, you are, they know where you live. They know which party's primary you voted in. In some states, they know which party you're registered with. They know whether you voted recently or not. They know your name. They know your date of birth. If they can link that with your social media information, which they can, sometimes using Twitter and these kinds of things, and this is where you're starting to see the federal level mostly, you know, trying to call this information, that can be even more data that can be fed into a model to try and predict who they should target and not for micro-targeting purposes. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be the next step, and that's what we're going to see. The more people share, the more data campaigns are going to be able to access, and the more they're going to be able to target, maybe find new kind of little niches of voters that they hadn't been looking at before, but some of it might just be kind of shoring up their base and making sure these are the issues that matter to our voters. Mm-hmm. And this is a whole new area, especially in our, because, you know, when we're buying TV, we can narrow it down pretty specifically. You're Republican, you're buying Fox News, you're buying Democrat, you're buying whatever. So this, I think your data, Bernard, you're talking about is really going to help us in all forms of media yeah. as far as buying. I have one more question, unless Alex, do you have no, anything? You okay, I'll, I'll go ahead with this one then. I it's about President Obama because you've all sort of referenced the fact that in 2008 he sort of started this avalanche toward social media uh, and political campaigns. And I, I wanted you to all sort of reflect on that. What, what was it that he did? And did he do anything different in 2012? Well, he engaged a younger voter base. He, he engaged a whole new generation of voter base that – heretofore had not really cared, okay? He, he got the message of hope and change out there that could not have happened. Because like Bernard said, th- these, this 18 to 24, they don't watch television. 
they might watch Netflix. I mean, my son's 21. Uh, you know, he, he watches everything on his Mac. His whole world is his Mac, Netflix, whatever. They don't watch traditional news. They do what Emily was talking about. They seek things out. So it, it's a whole new it's a it's it's a whole new world of of so. We can't get to them through traditional means. Mm-hmm. Radio, obviously not. Uh, direct mail, obviously not, because they're so transient. You know, mm-hmm. uh, TV, you might get them, uh, but there again, it's not like the fifty-five-year-old guy coming home and watching Hannity at night with his beer. You know, mm-hmm. so the the bottom line, I think, is just the ubiquity of social media. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. you cannot run a campaign. You. Some would argue you can't govern without using Twitter, maybe Facebook as well. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. One minute. Was there anything different in 2012? Yeah. So, I mean, I would, I would go one step back mm-hmm. and look at 2004, mm-hmm. presidential election. John Kerry lost that election. It wasn't very close, but there were, you know, the, the idea, I mean, there was Iraq war was just starting and all these things are coming up. The idea was, I mean, this is going to be a major part of the election. They thought, you know, a lot of Democrats really thought, especially younger Democrats engaged by anti-war activism and these kind of mm. things, thought, you know, Kerry's going to win. They were using data that was more on the traditional side. I mean, social media wasn't really taking off yet. Facebook did exist, but it was very early stages. Right? Using that kind of older style voter contact list and these kind of registration databases. But it was all kind of separated out. Mm-hmm. 2008 campaign, I think the idea was change things up. Mm-hmm. The idea was we're going to change up the strategy and have to just try some things that work, willing to look at the data, challenge our existing thinking, consolidate a lot of those voter lists into one big format, then started linking it more with social media. I think that's the change from 2008 to 12. Mm-hmm. But the real idea is 2004 to 2008 saying we're willing to kind of rock the boat mm-hmm. and buck the conventional wisdom. And now that conventional wisdom that they bucked is kind of the norm. Okay. I want to thank uh, Bernard L. Fraga for that. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Blair Engelhardt has also been with us. Emily Metzger was here as, as a guest as well. And uh, for producer Claire McInerney, engineer Mike Pashkash, also for um, Alex Dierkman, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net and from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement, offering undergraduate and advanced degrees, publichealth.indiana.edu.